The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. We were talking about the one line that says, um, living lightly and with few duties. And the word duties um, gave us some conversation around that. And I was curious if the word duty in this time or it was different or if it's referring more to a monastic life or maybe you could... I can answer that question, but I'm curious, uh, why... Why... why? <laughs> Okay, so I'm cu- I'm curious what um, uh, what prompted w- yeah what prompted that what what's the issue around duties that was kind of stopped you guys? Well, I guess for me, I, the word duty. I mean, even in this culture, the American way, but to serve your duty, like even in with the to volunteer to serve your serve your duty in the the military, not to take that too far, but just that word duty. But duty has a sort of thing that everyone should have a duty. Now realize it doesn't say no duties. It says few duties. But so I guess, I guess so what I'm hearing is that the word duty maybe implies obligation with few obligations. Is that what it is? As opposed to... Because um, I, I guess duty kind of fits somewhere maybe in the spectrum between obligation and responsibility. So, so I'm curious about what, what, you know, what, what, what's this? What, was, what are the association with the word duty that caused you guys to stop and look at it? You felt somehow, somehow didn't feel quite right or comfortable, or yeah, partially I think because there is a sense of having duties. Some duties is the right thing to do. I don't know. It's just a is in terms of being responsible. Is uh-huh. there's some, but. Not sure what the word meant in this context. Yeah, well, I think it, you know it was. I think I think it's safe to say probably this was originally meant for a monastic context. Right. So, uh, but I think it's it's true for anyone. If you have too many responsibilities, too many too many commitments, you know, maybe maybe for our kind of lay Western California life, maybe the word commitments is a nice substitute. Too many commitments, you're not going to get so peaceful if you're overcommitted. So it's probably safe to safe to leave it at that. What what is the phrase "easily supported" intended to mean? Well, especially for monastics, that uh, for anybody, but monastic is someone who can be supported by because they're supported by laity, but uh, they don't need much. They're happy with simple foods, simple clothes, simple housing. They're not asking for a lot of luxurious stuff and being a burden on their supporters. But it, I think it's, it's relevant for lay people too, right? So, um, the um, easily supported, <clears throat> you know, so your 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 livelihood is easy, easily supported. You don't have to, you know, take on a second job and yeah. You started to answer this question, but I was wondering if you could tell us something about the. The, the history of, of this uh, of the sutta and um, it, much of the material in the sutta seems 
um, unrealistic for people today, or it, seem, it seems like a reach. Uh, I, I know that sounds awfully harsh, but it, it, I, don't, I don't mean it to be that way. But it does seem as though it's a very high high bar that's set here. Uh, yeah, yes. So, 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 to go through your questions, uh, we uh, this this text just simply appears in the in the canon, in the early Buddhist canon, by itself, and there's no explanation about the history of it. Scholars have looked at it. Uh, some scholars who tried to tease apart the historical layers of texts have uh, made the argument because of the grammar, the last. Um, uh, three lines or so, three lines here, uh, are a later edition, weren't there originally. So whether that's true or not, you know, it's just, it's hard to know. Um, a thousand years after the Buddha, there was a, a, a commentator by the name of Buddha Gosha, and he wrote um, a story about how the Buddha came to teach this. And, uh, and that's a little bit phantasmagoric. Or, or you know, or you know, supernatural. There were a group of monks who were traveling around the Himalayas, the foothills, and they came to what looked like a really beautiful place to have uh, to spend the rains retreat. They spent three months on retreat in the woods, and it was near a village where they get support, and it was a beautiful place. And so they set up their, set up themselves there, and there happened to be a whole bunch of tree spirits who lived in those trees underneath where they were, and the tree spirits felt that they had to kind of move out for these monks. And, but then they, they, they realized the monks were staying, and so they were kind of upset. So at night, the tree spirits would make a lot of noise, frightening noises. And the, the monks, uh, you know, they weren't talking to each other exactly, so, but they all got wider and wider and more and more, you know, like they were all scared out of their wits by whatever those tree spirits were doing. So at some point, they noticed it, you know, that they were all, you know, frightened out of their wits and were losing weight and pale and shaking all the time. So uh, they said, we got to go talk to the Buddha. So they left that place, went and found the Buddha and explained to him what had happened. Said, what should we do? Where should we go now? You know, probably they're hoping he would tell him, tell him to go someplace else. And he said, oh, you have, that's a good place for you. You have to go back there. <laughs> and, and, and so he said, but when you go back, uh, recite this sutta. And, uh, and so they went back and recited the sutta and that, then the tree spirits were happy. They felt, you know, this kindness coming towards them, and so then they, you know. So it's it is directed at monastics. That in that story, there it is. It's a story in, in the Buddhaghosa story. It's a thousand years after the Buddha. So how accurate it represents what happened a thousand years before, we don't know. But I mean, I mean, what do people such as yourself think about this? As in terms of the intended audience, would there have been a householders? Um, who would have been in, in an original audience conceivably? There, there were householders in the original audience for, for a lot of the teachings. I mean, I mean, all the teachings, but some of the teachings. And there were householders who meditated. There were householders who had uh, uh, full realizations. Uh, there were householders who were teachers. But there, weren't they more on the margins rather than the core group? Yeah, probably so. I don't know if margin, I don't know exactly what that means, margins, but I think they were, uh, rather than say margins, I'd say they were probably a small minority. Very small. I think it was very. It's, I think back. You know, there was very little. Uh, my, I, my my guess is back in the ancient world, there was very little capacity for lay people who had to make a livelihood to take time off to do the kind of intensive meditation practice that it usually takes to to do the practice. 
here in the modern West, we have uh, uh, the kind of ability that uh, you know, ha- people haven't seen before. I mean, they didn't have retreat centers down the street. They didn't have you know, residential retreat centers you know, within driving distance they can go to. And people didn't have vacation or breaks and work that uh, allowed them to go off. And so the ability back then was not so great for lay people. And so um, you know, it was really people who were monastics who had the ability to really step out of the responsibilities of ordinary life and livelihood, so they had the time to do this. Nowadays, lay people have lots of, you know, not lots, but depending on whether you have kids or what's going on, but there's a lot of leeway to drop out, to go back in, to take time off, go on vacation. But it also, I mean, in terms of the, just to to take this a tad further, in terms of the thematic elements here, that would be consistent with the idea of non-attachment. If these people were indoctrinated, to, to not, you know, to, to, uh, to d- be detached, then this makes a lot more sense. Yes, I think, I think uh, um, you saw, talked earlier about it, it seems like a really high bar. Um, I think that's been always the case, that uh, uh, great religious uh, leaders have had a high bar for what is possible for a human being. Otherwise, they wouldn't have been great religious leaders and models and exemplars. And, and they have a high bar, they have a high, they point to a great poss- potential possibility that human beings can have. And, um, and so, you know, hu- uh, human life would be a lot poorer if these capacities, possibilities weren't available to us. Uh, I think what most teachers will say is that the bar is not too high, everyone can attain this. Uh, but it really matters on whether you want to enough and put the time in and effort to do to, to so. But the, 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 the possibility, it's a human possibility. And, but when you use the word detachment uh, in English, uh, it lends itself to kind of a, a, a associations with aloofness, indifference, and all that. Uh, so, so it's a little, bit of a, a little bit of a dicey word to use in English to, to refer to Buddhism. The, in, in Buddhist English, uh, we don't, you don't, I don't think we use the word detachment very much. We use the word attachment. And sometimes we use non-attachment, but it's, uh, non-attachment should be understood as a synonym of non-clinging. Yeah, I, I, I realize <coughs> saying not detached. Okay. But non-clinging, and non-clinging. Yeah. But non-clinging doesn't mean that uh, we don't uh, engage in the world. Uh, we just we engage in the world with, uh, without clinging to it. So is, does this make some sense? And, yes, Aaron. So... Uh, <clears throat> Yeah, I've read this uh, sutta a, a number of times before, and I always felt like it's uh, the highest possible uh, aspiration. And uh, I'm actually kind of pleased to hear that the last three lines were possibly added on later, uh, because it kind <clears throat> of opens up a lot of questions. I, I like the, I like it. I always just read it thinking, oh, those last three lines don't really make sense to me. It seems self-contained uh, up until the end as a, this is called the sublime abiding, here mm-hmm. and now, the very practical, phenomenological, are you suffering right now? Are you okay? Um, and I see this as the aspiration of, uh, I mean, you're cultivating a skillful, skillful karma by doing these practices, um, inclining yourself to have skillful states, that is, non-afflictive states, uh, come up again and again. And uh, it doesn't, I mean, all the Brahma Viharas seem to be headed in that direction. And 
karma in the sense of cause and effect of am I suffering right now? It seems like that is, this is the skillful tool we're, we're developing and this, this sutta is a, uh, an expression of, of our highest aspirations. Beautiful, thank you. Uh, Aaron, you sort of took the words out of my mouth. Um, the, um, I also thought that the lines, so toward all beings one should cultivate a boundless heart, uh, the whole world uh, above, below, and all around, without obstruction, hate, or ill will, um, uh, is, yes, the highest aspiration. Uh, uh, and... Uh, I think perhaps just reading those words, one becomes inspired by the beauty of the concept. And so, um, and so uh, perhaps the Buddha was really making an effort to search for a really concise wording that got this point across um, and, and, uh, so that it would be, have the maximum inspirational value. And so maybe it was, you could say, Aimed at householders with a lot of duties because they're important too, and and um, uh, maybe they need inspiration of this level to to um, to uh, uh, follow the path. Yeah, so that's great. Uh, I like. Thank you. Um, I hope that uh, what you read here in this text is not left as something that's only supposed to be aspiring, inspiring as, you know, some great ideal far in the future and above that, you know, it can't really do, but it's, you know, po- you know, it's inspiring at least to know that it's possible and, you know, it's encouraging and it arouses a lot of faith and all that. This, 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 is, this is not so difficult. <laughs> it can be done. You, you, you guys can do it. <clears throat> you might not be able to have boundless, boundless love without obstruction over the whole world, all the time, but it's certainly possible to do it uh, in, in for periods of time, and uh, and that's what you know. This is part of the reason why we have this meditation practice in loving kindness and retreats on loving kindness. And I've known lots of people who not lots, but I mean, you know, yeah, lots of people who have done loving kindness practice to a, uh, and, and been really developed, strong concentration, strong opening of the heart. And they would characterize that their love as being boundless, covers the whole world, spreads out in all directions. And these are people who, you know, you'd run into on the street, you know, walk by on the street, you know, not wearing robes and, you know, living ordinary, relatively ordinary lives, except they go on retreats sometimes. Yeah, go ahead, Smita, maybe you can. The last um, two or three lines. Um, I think <clears throat> I, I'm missing my copy. Thank you. Um, so somewhere it says, "One who is virtuous, endowed with vision, uh, then it's talk about not taken by views, which I think suggests the first degree of enlightenment, and having overcome all greed for sensual pleasure, which I think suggests the third degree of enlightenment." And then all the way to will not be reborn again, which is the fourth degree of enlightenment, the final one. So is the Buddha suggesting that if we are able to develop a continuous, non-stop, 
um, heart of loving, boundless heart of loving kindness to all beings, just that itself will get us to the fourth degree of enlightenment. I believe that most, most commentators on this in the tradition, most teachers who make comments on this, we don't know what the Buddha meant, if that's indeed the Buddha, but most, the tradition itself mostly takes us to be um, becoming a non-returner. So a non-returner is not reborn again. In this world. Yeah, yeah. You can, you're not quite born. You know, you get. That's you, a low, low enough bar. Yeah. Not born here and now, or something. Yeah, it doesn't mean you know. I think most people think you don't get reborn as a human. Uh, a non-returner kind of reappears in this very uh, formless realm where they finish their work. <coughs> so. <coughs> Oh yeah, I don't know. I don't know about this. <laughs> I'm having trouble just getting the kids out out of the door <laughs> in the morning. <laughs> Do um, the Harvards and MITs of uh, Buddhism, which are all in the East. Um, actually um, suggest that by just by doing loving kindness you can go all the way up to non-returner. Yes, so, there, so there, there are people who are saying that, the, that loving kindness practice uh, can be the primary path to deep states of realization. And, um, and, uh, but if you look at the suttas or what it says about loving kindness practice, um, uh, you know, you have to do a little... Uh, uh, it, it seems the clearest statements the Buddha made about it is that you do loving kindness practice until you get very strongly concentrated, and then you switch to insight practice. And it's the insight practice on that strong states of concentration that's liberating, not not the, not loving kindness by itself. Yeah. So in this sutta, what what I see is that it covers the whole eightfold path in that, you know, the first couple of lines, it's to reach the state of peace. That's right view or right understanding. Where are we going? And that whole first piece is about right action. Mm -hmm. You know, it's about how we live in the world and the idea of, of not clinging tightly to views, to self, and that kind of gets reintroduced even later in you know in the other pieces of that, um, and it's also the piece that last section: walking, standing, lying down, sitting. You know that's the whole piece on developing samadhi. It's the concentration and the mindfulness piece of recollection. You know the the word of that phrase: may one stay with this recollection. That's the whole practice of sati. Remembering, recollecting, what am I doing here? Mm -hmm. what, what's the, you know, what's the orientation? Yeah. Where am I going? Beautiful. Yeah, so this is all contained within this. <clears throat> so, um, I wanted to make a comment on the sentence, a few duties and being light. Uh, I'm Italian. And um, in Italy, everyone has a lot of free time, and we really value free time. And then when I came here, 
it became a lot harder to value my free time because you feel this impulse to be doing things all the time. And it's, conta it's contagious here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it's, it's, uh, it has really positive uh, aspects of the, this too. But then on the other hand, um, you become more mindless and doing all of this is a lot harder. And so I think that if we find more time to dedicate to the sutta, even just thinking about it, it's going to become a little easier and not just something we're aspiring to, but something that is more within our grasp. I think so. I agree completely. We should move the sangha to Italy. You sure? <laughs> that relates to something we were talking about in, in terms of um, how uh, we're so much more um, able to be happy and, and, and uh, uh, happy in the heart when we're not rushed and when we're, we have few duties and I mean if we, if we can arrange that um, and so that that really makes it more um, available then and the other thing that, that really inspires me is, is your um, recounting of how the Buddha apparently said that if, if this comes in the snap of a finger in the time that it takes a finger to snap that's that's wonderful in other words uh, and I know you you said yeah we don't give up there we're, we're still but that's encouraging to me you know because it, it sometimes it can it feels like maybe I my heart opens up to it and then and then and then I get lost again and then and then and it keeps happening, kind of like drops just coming down from the eaves, and uh, uh, the, the idea that it can just happen any any time I remember, actually. Yes. Uh, and something and something significant is available here and now. You don't have to put it off for a long time. Yeah. Yeah, and then it, and then I'm not looking for any enduring state mm -hmm. necessarily. Great. Thank you. Yeah. So right behind you, Kat. So, um, in both of my groups, I personally struggled a little bit with the last line of the first paragraph where it said, and should, do, uh, should not do the least thing that the wise would criticize. Do you want me to explain why I was... Sure, okay. sure. Um, I, I struggled with it because in my belief of wisdom... Um, there is no criticism, or there's a non-judgment. Um, and in our, in my second group, I one of the women shared that one of the things that I really appreciated was that the the wisdom or the wise person could be us and our own measure against right. ourselves. And that's sort of how I uh -huh. I liked to think of it. Um, but I was just curious on if there was any background to that and. Who exactly? Well, criticize. I mean, criticize. I mean, I guess it has I, I, maybe some people have translated this thing as uh, the, the, the wise would reprove. Mm -hmm. So I don't know if that softens a little bit. So you know the um, um, you know say you go to your teacher and you say you know it's really important for me to practice seriously. You know, it's the most important thing for me. And will you come and help me by uh, maybe leading a retreat? I'll sign up for the retreat. And so the teacher says, oh, sure, it'd be great to do. So you, you sign up for a retreat. 
and you're, you're there, the teacher's gone out of her way to teach the retreat, you know, and so there you are, you and another group of people. And, um, and then after lunch on the retreat, the second day, you say, you know, you know, it seemed like a good idea, you know, originally, but you know, I'll, it is still a good idea, but you know, I think I'll get around to the meditation maybe later in the afternoon. I think, you know, I should maybe, you know, I'll just go out and, you know, I'm, I'm, pretty, I'm pretty content with how things are. I think I'll just go take a nap under the tree and, or in the meditation hall, even better. <laughs> you know, they have soft cushions there. And, uh, and then you think about your teacher. You know, would your teacher approve of this? Would your, would your teacher, how would your teacher, what would it feel like if, you, if your teacher saw you do that? He said, you know, this wouldn't feel very good. You know, I asked this person to do it. You know, the person showed up making an effort. And, you know, I really said I'm going to be sincere. And, you know, it doesn't feel good. You know, so I think I'm not going to do that because, you know, I don't want to be criticized or I don't want to be reproved. I don't want to disappoint my teacher because my teacher wouldn't approve of this because I made a commitment to really do something. So I think there are times when, you know, we do look to other people. I think it's very human to look for... I don't know if approval is the right word, but we look for, you know, other people's opinion of us uh, matters. And, um, and there are perhaps things that we would do in private that we wouldn't do if um, someone we really respected a lot was watching. And perhaps if they really, really respected, maybe, maybe we don't do it because of fear, but we could also do it because out of inspiration and, and uh, you, know, you know, this person really is calling forth the best in me. And now that I'm being watched, I think I really I want the best of me to come forth. Um, and, um, you know, I've seen that with myself a few times around generosity, where there was a situation where I could be generous to someone, and I kind of didn't want to. Or, or you know, it's kind of, it didn't bother, I wasn't paying that much attention. But, um, but then uh, someone who I had a lot of respect for was, for was there. And that person reminded me of my deeper values and what I wanted. And, and, you know, I didn't want to... Somehow the fact that the person was watching had an impact on me. It, and I felt like, yeah, I, I really want to... I want the best in me to come forward here. I think I'll be generous. So I think we have... We're, 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 I think we can't get away from being social animals. and We look for each other's... I don't know if approval is the right word, but what, what we think of each other can be deadly be concerned about it. I mean, mostly, most people these days know about the neurotic aspect of looking for approval and being judged and all that. But I think there's something also uh, very, very appropriate and wise in a, about the way we look for each other and what respect and, and care about how people see, see each other. And I think in our culture, we've kind of forgotten about the, this, the, you know, in, in the old days, in the warrior culture, uh, your opinion counted for a lot. You know, your opinion, but your reputation counted for a lot, and you were a guardian of your reputation. And what people thought about you was actually important. And, and here in America, you know, we, we don't want anyone... To, you know, from one hand, we don't want to have people judge us, you know, and criticize us, and we don't want to be judgmental, and we want... And, and they, on one hand, but it goes closely together with this, I just want to do whatever I damn please. Leave me alone, you know, and, and uh, no one should tell me what to do. And, you know, th- th- you know, it's kind of extreme sometimes. And so I think there's a, maybe an appropriate place to, for our culture to, to reintroduce this idea that there is a play- way in which people we respect and our teachers and the fact that how they see us and what we do is, uh, can have a beneficial effect on us. And 
sometimes, like when I went to Zen Center, when I was, when I was a, a um, graduate from college, when I was still in college, I went to San Francisco Zen Center a few times and, um, and hung out there. And uh, one of the things that I really valued of being there was um, uh, I felt that all my funny ways of being in the world, all my attachments and ego games I was playing, um, got highlighted there. And, uh, and being there, I was called, being in front of a community that was much wiser and, than me, and more practiced than me. Um, uh, and the fact that these people were more mature had a big impact on me because it, it helped. I said, I want to go live there because I want to be accountable to these people. I want to be seen by these people so that I can see myself better. And so what's, the best part of me can come forward. So it was kind of, I was using them, you know, so they weren't criticizing me or judging me, but uh, you know, I knew that certain things that they would, they, they weren't, they would reprove, they weren't approving of, they weren't, they weren't reinforcing. My friends in college, I mean, they were just like, you know, I mean, they loved my neurosis. <laughs> you know, we would, you know, we, you know, the, you know, we were all in it together and we'd reinforce it and, you know, and, or people who would like to gossip or people who like to criticize each other people. I mean, you can get into a real sense of juicy energy and excitement, you know, let's just get together and gossip about those people. You know, isn't that great, you know? And um, so, you know, we, we can reinforce each other's bad habits. And then you can put yourself in, uh, in social situations where your bad habits are not reinforced. And in some healthy way, the opinions of other people count enough to call forth the best in us. So that's a you know, long-winded way of replying. I hope that was okay. Does that make some sense? But maybe we should not have the word criticize. So we reprove better? Yeah, you like to reprove better, no? Little charged, and our delicate egos. <laughs> yes. So, thinking, speaking on that word, criticize. Uh, so, on that word, criticize. Sometimes I like the word discernment. Um, taking that out of judgment that it's like sometimes we need to really look at something that's uncomfortable but that wouldn't work for this translation and should not do the least thing that the wise would discern that the, that the wise would consider unskillful or the wise would reprove or the wise but discern there is too neutral of a term for this translation but So, so when I finally got on to read this sutta, I'd known about it for some years, and I knew the part that's most famous for the metta sutta is the part about the mother would risk her own life to protect her child or only child. So towards all beings who want to cultivate a boundless heart. Um, there's a few things. So one thing about that piece is I see in the Buddhist traditions uh, a... a tendency to begin with what you're already doing and then universalize it as opposed to develop some universal religious qualities and reject your family. <laughs> so, it's, so here, so, so the idea is you, we, can have, we can already have uh, a certain kind of love, care for 
our family, perhaps, or our friends, or our neighbors, or people who... And then just like we would do it there, we would universalize it, we would spread it out. We don't, we don't reject those things. And it doesn't say here, it doesn't say, uh, you know, a mother shouldn't be so attached to her child. Get over it and, and have this boundless love for all beings. <laughs> um, but, you know, rather I think it's saying that there can be, there can be a lot of attachment, a lot of clinging with parenting, but there also can be something very pure and beautiful about the parental instinct, love that could go on. And so we universalize it. And, um, and I think to me that's quite beautiful. We t- start with what we're already doing that's good and then we spread it so we don't have any boundaries. It's not like my tribe and not your tribe. You know, my ethnicity or my country and not yours. But, you, know, you break down the, the practice of loving kindness involves, um, when you develop it further and further, it involves something that's called uh, breaking down the barriers. And uh, barriers are breaking down the barriers for our love so that there's no one that we exclude from our heart. And that's why it's very important as loving-kindness practice is developed uh, to engage in the very difficult work of learning how to love or have kind goodwill for your enemies, for the people who are difficult. And that raises a lot of, uh, a lot of challenges, a lot of reflection, a lot of soul-searching, a lot of deep questions, you know, deep deeper understanding of how, why and how and in what way can I extend love to this person who, you know, has, done, has wished me so much, so much harm. Um, but, you know, if you feel yourself, your heart closed to someone, then you're not free. And if your heart is closed, it hurts you. And so the path towards freedom to real peace requires that the heart become open. And loving-kindness practice for enemy is one of those ways we can stretch and figure out how to do it. But then how do we do it in a responsible way? How do we do it in a way that's not just, you know, Pollyannish or not just kind of becoming a pushover? Say, oh, you know, I love you. I know you stole my car and my, my you know, my house and all my money. And, you know, I love you. And, you know, here's the key to my second car. And you know, see if you can bring it back. <laughs> If you don't, it's okay, I love you. <laughs> you know, that's not, you know, that wouldn't be wise. But So the idea of breaking down the barriers is a very important part. And I think, to me, it's very inspiring, this, the possibility of not leaving anyone out of your heart, to find some way to, at least that's the direction we're going, and, and uh, to find a way to be neighbors, friends, fellow human beings, uh, equally with everyone so that there's no them, it's all us. Um, so that, that's, that's the most famous part. The part that surprised me when I finally went and read the sutta was the first section, because uh, it seemed like it had nothing to do with loving kindness. And maybe it doesn't have to be, it's about peace, it's about liberation. So if you want to become someone who can abide in a deep experience of peace, it really helps if you're this kind of person. Because um, if you're uh, not upright, upright kind of means honest and sincere. If you're not honest and sincere, it's hard to become peaceful. If you're not straightforward, if you kind of beat around the bush and don't really say what you mean, and you know, I don't think it's that easy to be peaceful. And easy to speak to means that uh, uh, means to be uh, reproached. That's what it really means. 
uh, it means that if you have done something that you shouldn't have done, that caused harm or difficulty, that uh, your teacher, your friend, your community come to you and say, oh, by the way, you know, we've noticed this about you. And then you're easy to speak. You don't get defensive and huffy and angry. You say, oh, you say, oh you've seen that. Well, let's talk about it a little bit. Let's explore this, what it means, what's going on. And, um, and uh, we, do, we do a great favor. In fact, uh, in the Buddhist tradition it says, um, you should treat as a treasure someone who points out your faults. So hopefully they don't do it in a judgmental way or a way that makes you feel belittled. But uh, it's, a real, it's a treasure to have someone help you out and point, point, out, point to where you can grow and develop. Uh, gentle and not proud. I guess the opposite of gentle, I don't know, what is that? Uh, harsh. And uh, proud is, you know, so both harshness and, and pride can, in this traditional sense is, um, is not peaceful. It's an agitated state to be in. And then living uh, lightly, I guess the opposite would be, would be uh, living with lots of burdens and lots of needs and lots of stuff to take care of. And, and it's hard to be peaceful with all that. And with few commitments. If you want to be peaceful, it helps to be wise. And it helps if your senses are calmed. So, so I don't know exactly what they mean by senses calm, but I mean, there are people who are on fire with lust and greed and desire and, you know, for sense pleasure. And so, I mean, uh, our, sense, our sense pleasure drive needs to be relaxed enough that, uh, you know, we're not agitated by it. I mean, and maybe none of you have done this because you're all kind of, you know, I don't know what you are, but... Uh, <laughs> Approaching middle age. Is that what it is? <laughs> But I, I can remember one night when I was in my early 20s or something, you know, and I was sleeping on the couch and she was in the bedroom with the door open. And I didn't want to go in there, but I didn't sleep that night. It was clearly the imitation was there, but somehow, and I was on fire. It was a, str- it was a, a whole night struggle. And then she came in the middle of the night and got and sat next to me on the couch, and, you know, and, and poor Gil, you know. Uh, you know, the senses were not calmed. <laughs> and um, so they're not arrogant. So, uh, you know, and without greed for supporters. So uh, to me, uh, you know, it's about peace, but I think also it's a good foundation for loving kindness, for developing this generous spirit of the heart, of, of uh, friendship or kindness to others. And it's kind of the two go together. But to me, it's inspiring to read this. It's very meaningful. And, uh, and um, yes, Laurie. I feel like that's also, in order for us to open our hearts, we have to cultivate those. You know, if, if, if I'm holding on to, I want this, or I have a particular view that I'm not, willing to let go of, I can't open my heart to anyone because I'm keeping them all at bay. You know, they're other and they're not part of us. So I think it's really integral. Yes. So so I like the sutta quite a bit uh, because of the way that 
the path of freedom, of liberation, of peace seems to be integrated together with uh, the path of loving kindness. And I like to think of them being mutually supportive in a beautiful way. And for those people who are inclined or inspired, uh, it's beautiful to uh, be involved in both these practices of um, path of freedom, of letting go, of non-clinging, and the path of uh, loving kindness, of metta. And they're definitely mutually supportive of each other. The more, uh, more you've let go of your clinging, the more the capacity to love is there. The more the love is there, the less we're inclined to cling to things. So, um, and then they call it a sublime abiding here and now. A beautiful abiding, beautiful way of being, beautiful way of living in the here and now in this life. So, um, in the in the Theravada tradition, uh, loving kindness is metta is considered the foundation for the other three forms of love, for compassion, sympathetic joy, and equanimity. And um, and one way it's understood is that when there's um, the basic goodwill towards other people, when you encounter someone and they're suffering, that goodwill gets morphed into the empathy that wants to help them be free of suffering. When you meet someone who's having some great happy experience in their life, that basic goodwill gets morphed into sharing their happiness with them. And when you encounter someone who's going through some difficulty, some suffering, but there's nothing you can do for them. Uh, then uh, there's a form of love, and this is a, you know, it takes some understanding to understand how this can be the case, where, um, uh, where equanimity characterizes that love. A certain balance of mind where you don't, uh, you know, maybe take responsibility for it, but let, it, let the situation be as it is when there's nothing you can do. So, uh, because it's the foundation, then loving-kindness is, uh, uh, is very much uh, valued as something to practice and develop in this tradition. And perhaps some of you would like to do that more. And in the month before we do compassion, um, maybe some of you would like during the month to uh, spend some time either doing the, both doing the loving-kindness meditation, but also as you go about your daily life, Look for corners of the day, little sections, segments of the day, maybe standing in line at the supermarket. Um, other times when you're basically not doing much, like maybe at the red light or, you know, I don't know what you do, but look for opportunities in the day uh, where you could start reflecting or considering uh, what would it be like if at this juncture, this point, uh, you were feeling kindly disposed, you were feeling metta, an attitude of metta, for the people around you, and what would it take, and what, would, how, what way would you do it that's realistic, and could you generate a little bit of goodwill, and and kind of somehow extend it to the people who are around you? Don't just do it. Don't just do it as a meditation practice, but let it also be something that uh, is a reference point for your daily life as well. So those are my thought. That's my thoughts for today. I think that uh, in the spirit of and the idea of being inspired by the Italians, we should we should end early, <laughs> and have you know, and have some free time, and hang out, and chat, and um, so um, one of the things we do on these days is 
if you haven't been here before, that it's the people who practice here who, who really take care of this place, that all the support, all the caretaking that for this place all comes from the people who practice here. There is not like them here, just us, right? <clears throat> and so one of the forms that takes is that um, it's uh, the people who use the place who help clean the place. And the end of a day like this, we ask for seven or eight volunteers to stay behind about 10 minutes to do the basic tidying up. The bathrooms need to be tidied up, the trash needs to be cleaned, uh, maybe the kitchen needs to be cleaned up a little bit. And, um, and who is... Some ma- so Aaron is the manager over there. And so uh, do we have seven or eight people who are willing to stay? So let's go one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Great. So if you can talk to Aaron, Aaron will kind of organize you a little bit so you're not all in the same bathroom. <laughs> and um, and uh, I want to thank you very much for today, and I hope that any of the benefits that comes from this day is something that you share with others. Thank you.